This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. We've been studying a part of Christian living commonly known as the spiritual disciplines. And these are grace-driven habits we pursue as Christians to think and to behave godly, to be godly. Um, These habits shape us to live and to love like Christ. And so we've studied scripture intake, prayer, fasting, evangelism, serving, confession, a whole host of other disciplines. All of these disciplines are grace-driven habits that Jesus uses to make us godly. And now, many of us, we agree with these uh, as Christians. Many of us even uh, pursue these disciplines. But I think if we're honest this morning, I know I can be honest about this this morning, that these disciplines don't come natural to us. They're just not the natural thing we wake up and do. And what I would hope to offer this morning from the scriptures is a way in which we can have more steadiness and more freedom and more perseverance in our pursuit of these godly habits in our lives, and that we would be able to do so for our good and for the good of others and for the glory of God. Um, One way in which, for instance, we can be bolstered in our faithfulness uh, to pursue these disciplines is through the spiritual discipline that I see as knitting all of the other ones together and knitting them together with the lives of real people. And this is the spiritual discipline of community. God has designed us for community, and he has saved us to community, and he desires his people to be an ever-expanding community of believers in Jesus Christ. And so with that setting the tone for us this morning, we're going to be picking up in Ephesians chapter 4, and you can open there in your Bibles, and we'll also have the scripture uh, on the screens as well. Ephesians 4, this is uh, one of the most foundational texts that we have to shape our perspectives this morning. The Apostle Paul who wrote this letter, he's writing to a church uh, in Greece, and he had been with them for three years, ministering to them, planting them. Eventually he has to move on, and then a little later he's arrested for sharing the good news of Jesus. And so now he's writing to this church from prison uh, to teach them and to lovingly grow these believers in their understanding of certain spiritual truths. And with the gospel in mind, Paul bursts into this teaching on unity and the body of Christ. And listen to this. He spends nearly 20% of this entire letter introducing and explaining the body of Christ. So these people had been with Paul for three years, yet they still needed to ponder more on this body of Christ that Paul spoke of. And so I wonder, maybe we've heard these things before, Um, It might just be a reminder. Maybe it's totally new for some of us. But uh, I pray that, like Paul, as we study the body of Christ this morning and fellowship and the discipline of community, we would keep the gospel at the front of our minds because Jesus gave his life in order to make these things possible for us. It's very important to grasp. So starting in in, uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul says this, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, 
just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Skipping down to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And we'll stop there. So Jesus' perfect work on the cross, it means at least these three things for us this morning in regard to community. Number one, in order to be the body, we need the Holy Spirit. In order to be the body, we need the Holy Spirit. This discipline, this discipline of community is fueled by the Holy Spirit, just as the other disciplines are. And the imagery of a body here is so fascinating, um, and it, it seems really relevant to me this morning. It actually makes me think of my mom, who recently had knee surgery. She actually had an entire knee uh, replacement. It's pretty serious. And I have permission to share this this morning. Um, but obviously, in order to add this new knee to her body, it wasn't enough for us to try to do it ourselves. And I'd like to think that we're a pretty capable family unit. And we've definitely tried things in the past that are outside of what we've been qualified to do. But um, I think the best we could do for her would probably just be to take her the new knee and kind of wave it over her leg and hope it somehow makes its way into the right place at some point. And the reality is she needed much better medical attention than what we could offer. Instead, something drastic had to happen. So the, the miracles of modern science and the specialized uh, talents of surgeons had to work to integrate a new member into her body. And she shed blood and pain and tears over it. It's been really hard to watch. And this small illustration is a sobering reminder this morning that something drastic had to happen to integrate, to take limp, dead sinners like you and like me and integrate them into fully-fledged members of the body of Christ. Human energy couldn't have pulled this off. It was the miracle of resurrection, and it was the specialized grace of God that saved us. And Christ, he shed all of his blood to pay for our sins. And after rising from the dead, he qualified us to stand before God worthy to become a member of his body, his church, through faith and repentance. And when we place our trust in, in that, the Holy Spirit immediately transplants us into the body of Christ. So church is not basically a club. This is important this morning. It's, it's not just another activity. It's not, firstly, an organization or a nonprofit. It's an organism. It's, it's described as, as living, and it's living with life and purpose coming from Christ, our head. And just as every cell in your body has the same DNA, 
every one of us has the same spiritual DNA in Christ. That's the Holy Spirit. And by the Spirit, we do what Paul says in verses 3 and 4. We be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For remember, there is one body and one Spirit. God has given the Christian something to be eager about this morning. He has united you with himself. And consequently, he has united you with all other believers. You are inextricably linked to this body. And this is why theologians have said that God has not only saved us to himself, but he has saved us to each other. We share the blood of Christ. We share the breath of his spirit. And God places a very high premium on this reality. We need to believe it. And so we need the Holy Spirit. Secondly, in order to be the body, we need each other. In order to be the body, we need each other. Now, this can be understood a couple different ways. Uh, one way, though, is that Scripture is just full of different phrases that God uses to describe his people, his collection of people. And what's amazing is that these phrases often have qualities that simultaneously describe our relationship to each other. And so as counterexamples, we don't really see God describing us as a batch or a group of individuals or a crowd of strangers. Instead, he uses much more intimate language such that we're all connected. So as examples, the church is God's temple. We're his living stones built upon each other with Christ as our cornerstone. The church is God's flock, and we are shepherded by him. The church is God's house, and we are adopted by him. We're family. The church is Christ's body, and we are his members. Now, what's interesting to ask is how do these same metaphors sound or hold up if we are all separated from each other? For instance, if all the stones are missing from a temple, they've just been scattered across a city, and all that's left is a cornerstone, does it look much like a temple anymore? Or what flock is called a flock when every sheep has been dispersed out of sight from each other? What flourishing family is pictured by each member eating dinner every night in their own bedrooms? And this is my favorite. What human body has no body parts but just a head? <laughs> That's not a thing. The point is, God's metaphors, which are, which are only shadows of the full spiritual reality at hand, they don't make much sense, and they don't send a powerful message, and they cannot resonate fully with us if we follow Christ in isolation. Instead, we need each other to make practical sense out of God's language for our sake, and I think God genuinely wants us to live in an, in an interdependence. Not, so not a codependence where we're totally useless without each other, but more an interdependence where we are fully useful with each other. For instance, verses 15 and 16 say, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up 
in love. And so we're built up in each other's fellowship, and we need each other to display this reality. So in order to integrate into God's body, we need his spirit. In order to work properly and grow up in love, which is our design, in order to be the body, we need each other. And in light of all this, we move on to the next point. In order to persevere, we need the body. In order to persevere, we need the body. And what I am talking about here is kind of a two-pronged thing. It's being held up, being held up, and also being built up by the body. Held up from falling down and, and built up to grow. And let me explain why this is relevant. So in Ephesians 4, 14, Paul teaches that there is something deeply pernicious about being apart from the body. There's something dangerous about being bodiless. And he says that without the body, we are like children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So without other believers in our lives, we are in danger of being deceived by sin or uh, desensitized to sin or even derailed by sin. And so this is worth self-assessing in this moment. And I ask myself this too. If there are not multiple other Christians in your life who are encouraging you and who are challenging you, then you are in danger. And it's, it's not because you're weaker than anybody else, and it's not because you're less than or because I'm just trying to bother you up here and poke your button. It's because we're human. You and I are humans, and we're fickle and relatively stubborn and wayward on our own, right? God, God, he calls us a flock. That's endearing, but that also means we're sheep. And I don't think it's any coincidence that uh, God is maybe sending us a message when he compares us to an animal that will walk off a cliff to its death without a shepherd and a flock reminding it where the safety is. And so my faith is in danger without the body. It's dullened without the body. And so I need help persevering. And I'll tell you why. Because being a faithful Christian is hard. It's really hard. Can I say that? It's hard to avoid sin. It's hard just to be morally neutral, let alone obey God. And it's hard to pursue a wide range of godly habits over a lifetime without the God-ordained, God-designed discipline of community holding us and building us up through it all. And this is why Paul points out in our passage that the body was designed to withstand the, the weight of, quote, bearing one another, bearing one another's sins, our honest struggles. And this means we have to be authentic with each other. And that doesn't mean, <laughs> that doesn't mean spilling you know, your deepest heart issues to every Christian you meet, but it means authenticity with several believers is, is key to the faith. And so what does that mean for the church? Well, that means that a church will feel a lot less like a waiting room 
for a doctor and a lot more like a waiting room for an, in, uh, excuse me, will feel a lot less like a waiting room for a job interview and a lot more like a waiting room for a doctor. And this is how Tim Keller puts it because it's his quote. In the job interview, we all try to look as competent and, and as impressive as we can. Weaknesses are buried and hidden. But in a doctor's waiting room, we assume everyone there is sick. Everyone there is sick and needs help. And this scene is much closer to the reality of what's going on in the church. And so in this room, you need to know that you are not alone in having uh, serious struggles, desperately scheming to tear you down on any given day. In a room this size, there are struggling marriages. There are families that are falling apart. There are addictions being battled. There are physical and emotional abuses being escaped. There are diseases being fought. There is poverty being experienced. There's the love of money being fostered. There's loneliness and depression, isolation and indifference. There's resistance to discipline, to correction and to change. There's lack of grace and lack of forgiveness and peace and freedom. There are disobedient children and there are very harsh parents. There's gossip and slander and lust and dishonoring of marriage beds, jealousy, lying, and pride. And this is not meant to guilt anybody. I walk, actually, in fact, with many of you knowing that we hate our sin with a holy hatred, and we want to see it eradicated from our lives. But if any of us have been fooled into thinking that no one could understand or bear our struggles, then that is exactly what Satan wants us to think. Because we are all suffering from sin in some way. And I think in light of this, the mark of a healthy church is not the complete absence of sin, but the complete voluntary confrontation of it. That the mark of our health and our unity is not the complete absence of sin, but the complete voluntary confrontation of it. And that complete confrontation is made most complete when it's brought before the Lord and the Lord's body. And that's us. And so it's confronting our sin with a few other trusted believers in order to persevere. And so how can we practically do this? And that's a good question. And the book of Hebrews actually offers two uh, clear lessons in, in how we can persevere. And both cases actually fuel disciplines we've even uh, previously learned about. So namely, those will be uh, the discipline of confession and of service. And so Hebrews 3, 12 uh, through 13 is a practical lesson on being challenged by others to maintain our faith. This is an example of being, of being held up. And this is what it says. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. <clears throat> and so apparently, a heart that is unbelieving is one that was not regularly and lovingly challenged by other brothers and sisters. This heart didn't believe God and his warnings about lacking challenge from others, and as a result, we see them falling away from the Lord. And so exhortation, which means to strongly urge someone to do something based on God's word, is critical. And there is a rub there. 
Like, I know that, like, it's, it's uncomfortable to talk about it or imagine engaging in that. But knowing that God has forgiven us in Christ, we can confess our sins to each other without fear. We can do it actually with confidence, knowing that it's for our good and for our brother or sister's good. And so as a result, the discipline of community begins fueling our discipline of confession. Hebrews uh, 10 on the other side shows us a practical lesson on being encouraged in the faith. This is being, this is being built up. And so Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So here we should seek to encourage and we should seek to be encouraged and stirred up to love each other and do good works. And I think the lesson here is that encouragement in the body breeds joyful service in the church. And so the discipline, the discipline of community then, it fuels our discipline of service. And before we move on, I want to quickly point out that this challenge and encouragement we're talking about, holding up, building up, these are not going to happen simply because we're around each other, just floating around you know, Christian events or get-togethers. We have to be intentional about creating regular fellowship where these sorts of things can take place. And part of that intentionality will be learning to distinguish uh, between socializing and fellowship. And... In his noteworthy book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, this is how Donald Whitney puts it. Although socializing is often both part of and the context of fellowship, it is possible to socialize without having fellowship. Socializing involves the sharing of human and earthly life, but Christian fellowship involves the sharing of spiritual life. Now, don't misunderstand Socializing is a valuable asset to the church and necessary for a balanced life. But we have, got, we have gone beyond giving socializing the place it deserves. We have become willing to accept it as a substitute for our fellowship, almost cheating ourselves of the Christian birthright of true fellowship altogether. And when this happens, our practice of the spiritual disciplines suffers and our growth in grace is stunted. In other words, and look, it's not bad to talk about Netflix with each other or sports or the weather. And the point is not that we need to be talking about spiritual things every single time we cross paths with each other. But at some point, we need to make the time and we need to have the faith to begin sharing matters of the heart, sharing matters of, of difficulties and of victories in our walk with Jesus and of our questions and our doubts and our fears and ultimately our hope in Jesus. And we do this because it's the context for which the body of Christ is designed to function and it propels us forward to persevere in each one of our faiths. And so in order to persevere, we need the body. Lastly, in order to make Christ known, we need our neighbor. In order to make Christ known. We need our neighbor. There is a purpose for the body of Christ 
that doesn't end with us. And now clearly, the body of Christ does serve us on a personal and collective level, but there is a component we have yet to observe this morning in Ephesians, uh, well, it's explained well in Ephesians chapter 3 and chapter 5, and it expands our discipline of community uh, beyond our church and into each of our worlds. And so in Ephesians chapter 3, just one page back for most of you, Paul explains uh, why what we are studying this morning matters, uh, more than just to persevere us, but, quote, to bring to light for everyone, for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for God, for it, hidden in it for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now made be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Simply put, our, our blood-washed, radiant body of Christ is a proclamation to the world that the gospel is true. We are a proclamation to the world that the gospel is true. Not just that we're good people or that we have it all together or we're just having a really, really great giddy time over here, but that we're broken. We're broken, yet we have hope. And that we suffer, yet Christ redeems every insufferable hurt. That God is saving us. He's united us by his spirit and that he's changing us to look more and more like Jesus. That the gospel is true, brothers and sisters. And Paul's goal was to bring to light for everyone the mystery hidden for ages. That mystery is the gospel. And everyone Everyone, including spiritual authorities in the heavenly places, are watching the plan of God being realized before their eyes. Like The angels are amazed because they knew that God could make all things right, but now they're seeing it. They're seeing it one human soul at a time. And they're falling down in worship, and the world is being made speechless as they witness that God's gospel is true. Through what? Through the church. Through us. Quote, that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. God is sending a message through his people. And the contrast between who we once were when he found us and who God is making us into today only points everyone to himself. It's like the sun and the moon. The moon shines light at night, but it's not generating that light. It's merely reflecting the sun's light to us. And likewise, the Son of God is reflecting off our lives and into the darkness of others. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, For at one time you were darkness, like the world, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and all that is right and true. So we now walk in light, serving one another and confessing to one another and exhorting one another, loving one another and loving our neighbors to bring to light for everyone the mystery hidden for ages, that your neighbor may know Christ and be saved too. Does that excite you? Me too. And so my hope would be for me to be encouraged and for you all to be encouraged not to stifle light in disobedience, and to not cover light through indifference. As Jesus himself said, no one, 
after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar, or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see it. And so who is seeing the light of Christ in you? Who from your secular community enters into your life to see the light? This would be uh, your neighbors, meaning your coworkers or your classmates. It could be family, friends, just acquaintances. And I know from personal experience that we may want to make Christ known to our neighbor, but we're sort of stuck because we've fashioned lives for ourselves that are scarcely oriented towards others because counting others' interests above our own is not the American, is not the American dream. <laughs> counting, American, counting others' interests <laughs> above your own is not the American dream. It's not. But it is the will of God. And if we're not careful, we won't just lack meaningful relationships with brothers and sisters, but we'll lack the possibility to have close uh, meaningful relationships um, with, with those who don't even know uh, Jesus. And so, um, with that all uh, in mind, um, I would just say don't cover your light. Don't cover your light and stick it under uh, a bed. And don't make yourself available only when it's desperately convenient because following Christ isn't convenient. And it's not easy. But it's not, that's not the promise of the gospel. The promise of the gospel is that God is making all things work together for our good and that Jesus Christ is perfectly satisfying no matter the struggle, no matter the sin. He's the perfect satisfaction for our souls. And so by the grace of God, promised by the gospel, we can do this. We can do this together. And so I would offer two practical ways to do so, to make Christ known to our neighbors. And I'm drawing these from a great resource called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Two practical ways to make Christ known to your neighbor. Number one, live under the authority of God and the church. Live under the authority of God and the church. And maybe that seems like a curious thing to say, uh, but the point is here that without obedience to God, without active membership, without sacrificial giving or willingness to receive correction or rebuke if, if needed or, or a whole host of other things, a stranger could read the Bible and then look at us and say, how could this be true for me if it's not true for them? Like, they don't seem to be very convinced that God is serious about what he commands. No, the, the Bible calls us to be steeped in the grace gifts of fellowship and of church membership, of prayer and fasting, repentance, Bible reading, scripture memory, and worshipful singing together. And if we're going to eventually invite people into these Christian grace gifts, we must be participating in them for ourselves. And so that's number one, live under those authorities. Number two, in order to make Christ known to your neighbor, work hard to know who your neighbor is and how they struggle. Work hard to know who your neighbor is and how they struggle. That is to say that it takes hard work to get to know someone and something I notice a lot in some Christian circles is a, a certain level of confusion as to why 
A Christian has invited another person to their house two or three times, and yet they don't feel much closer to each other. And the other person hasn't even reciprocated uh, the kind gesture of hospitable invitations. And let me tell you, inviting someone over your house is definitely a kind gesture. That is a good thing, and you should keep on doing that. But 95% of your trying to develop friendships with people will not be like the time you hit it off with your best friend and just had this fiery, explosive chemistry and all these hysterical laughs like 25 minutes after meeting each other. On the contrary, developing a deep friendship at first is often pretty awkward and silent and mostly uneventful for the first couple months in my experience. And that's, just, that's if I've been meeting with someone every week for a couple months. And for them to invite me into their home, that's something I would be actually surprised to experience even after several months, maybe longer depending on the person. And so if you need to, and if I need to, adjust our expectations a bit and become okay with the amount of time and effort it takes to really get to know the average person. But as you do this, slowly but surely let them in to your own struggles. Because the worst thing you can do is try to look perfect. Because they'll wonder why you even ever needed Jesus in the first place if it doesn't seem like you're dependent on him. And how confusing would it be then to tell them that they need to be dependent on him. They really need him. And so let them into your struggles of your past and of your current ones too and show them that because you live under God's authority rather than the compulsions of your own selfish desires, their secrets are safe with you too. And this can happen in a variety of ordinary contexts. It could be having a few people over for dinner. It could be going out to lunch. It could be hosting a movie night or a game night. It seems to be pretty popular these days around here. It could be getting together and, and bringing other believers in too, actually, to sing worship songs or hymns and, and read a psalm. It could be running errands together or shoveling your driveway or their driveway together. It could be helping a classmate study or carpooling with a coworker to work or to a work function. And as we do these ordinary things, we, we lovingly and gradually get to the deeper heart issues which are ultimately answered for them by Jesus. Rosaria Butterfield reminds us that the ultimate purpose of our discipline of community is to take the hand of a stranger and put it into the hand of the Savior. I love that imagery. And so I would say God is eager to partner with you this morning, and he's behind you in this, and so would you take him at his word and, and practice this discipline of community? I hope you've been encouraged this morning. I hope that you've been challenged. Um, the discipline of community within the church and outside the church, it's uh, indispensable for the Christian. And, and if you don't know Christ this morning, he loves you and he desires uh, the best for you. And he lived perfectly and he bore the wrath of God in death so you wouldn't have to do either of those things. So you don't have to perform perfectly and you don't, and, and, and there's hope for you if you feel like, how could anyone love me? No, instead, Christ rose from the dead and he has guaranteed you perfect salvation by faith and repentance, trusting that he not only saves you, 
but he unites you with a global family of believers with which to persevere this life by your side. And so let me pray for us this morning. I'll invite the team back on stage. And um, I would like to, I'd like to do something a little different this morning. I'd like to actually pray the same words that Paul prayed for uh, the church in Ephesus as he was teaching uh, on the discipline of community. And Paul, he prayed for all generations, uh, including future ones, that they would know the glory of God, the grace of God. And these generations include us, thank God, and they include our neighbors as well. So be mindful of that. And so I'll pray this, um, and you can be agreeing in your hearts as I pray out loud. Uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we bow down before you, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is created and named, that according to the riches of your glory, you may grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and height and depth of your love for us, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.